Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Um, before I start with the meat of my sermon, I actually just quickly want to show you guys a video of our time in Somaliland, um, because according to my husband, once I start talking, I don't stop, and I'd actually really like for you to have a bit of an idea of what the country looks like, and that you have an accurate picture in your head. So as Philip said, and my husband mentioned, we recently went on a family mission to Somaliland. It's not Somalia, it's Somaliland. It's found at the top of the Horn of Africa, and they split from the rest of Somalia in 1991. And despite the fact that they've got, they're an autonomous region, so they've got their own government, own voting systems, own passport, currency, military, everything, the African Union still doesn't recognize them as their own nation because they are afraid, and I think reasonably so, that this would encourage other secessionist movements in Africa to break away from their countries, and this would result in a ton of civil wars and deaths and everything. So I understand, but yeah, the country is desperate to be recognized as its own nation. Um, it is an active conflict zone, and there has been some terrorist activity in the last decade. And as my mother-in-law told us, and my biological father thought, we were often told that and in English, we are crazy to take our children there. And I don't necessarily disagree with them. That really settled in when we were transported from Terminal 3 at Dubai Airport to Terminal 2. And I don't know who of you have been in Dubai Airport, but Terminal 3 is all shiny and pretty and everything that's modern and crazy water features. And if you fly to nice first world countries, you can fly from that terminal. But if you go to anywhere that's remotely dodgy or not a first world country, they shuttle you off to Terminal 2 and immediately there's a change in atmosphere, change in quality, the terminal is in bad condition. And um, when we walked in there, we had to change into our clothing because I can't arrive there with my hair showing or in pants or anything like that, and despite the fact that my daughters were covered from, like, their eyes were basically showing, um, there were a couple of men that I'm assuming don't often see blonde hair, blue-eyed little girls, and they were literally undressing them with their eyes. And despite the fact that we hadn't slept for more than 20 hours, Christopher and I sat there trying to stay awake because we didn't know what was gonna happen. Um, but as crazy as it was, that is what we felt to do, and ironically, out of all the places that we've been in the last six weeks, Ireland and the Cape and Abu Dhabi and everything, if I had to ask my children, and I did ask them, their most memorable and favorite part of this trip was um, the driest dust, worse than third world mosquito infested 48 degree weather, Somaliland. And I think it's because there was an eternal element to it. There was something of God's heart that they received in that, in that nation. Um, so just to give you a last bit of quick context, Somali's national religion is Islam. Um, they're a closed country, which means it's very difficult to gain access as an outsider. If you don't know someone within the country or you don't have a job offer waiting for you, the chances of you being led through border control are next to zero. They are not open to other religions at all, so if they find anyone evangelizing, they're going to throw you in prison. Um, there's no alcohol or tobacco in the entire nation. They do, however, have, a, have another drug called cut that they chew on constantly. I'm not sure what the side effects of that are. My husband can maybe tell you more about that. <laughs> it's not what I said, but anyway. Um, <laughs> if a woman walks down the street wearing pants, they'll throw her in prison. This is not just a rumor, it's a reality. 
if I had to walk down the street with my hair loose or tied up but not covered, there is a very high possibility that I'd be stoned to death. Um, jeans is a scandalous word <laughs> in that nation. And just, to, you'll see a photo in the slideshow now, but if you want to move from one city to another city in the country, because it's a conflict zone, you're not allowed to see, leave the city perimeters without a military escort. So we were waiting for a military escort one afternoon because we wanted to go to the coast. And we were waiting and waiting, and he didn't show up. And eventually we left and went to the hospital and found another random soldier and asked him if he was keen for a road trip. But later, when the soldier made contact again, he said he's so sorry. He actually came to Salvation earlier. Um, but he was in a car accident, and then his phone blew up, and the guy that he was with died. And these are not normal things that happen in South Africa. But in Somaliland, I think every day there was some dramatic event that just blew our minds. And that's their norm. The devil is having an absolute field day there. But before I continue, um, will you please put the video on? Thank you. So as you can see, there are not a lot of photos of the local people. They're a very distrusting um, nation, which I can understand with all the conflict that's happened in the region. So the minute you take out your phone, they're like, oh, you're taking a photo of us. So yeah, the few that we got are precious. Um, I really struggled to pin down what the Lord wanted me to focus on today. I um, I can honestly say that our trip to Somaliland came and stirred up and, and stretched us and changed a lot inside of our hearts, and a lot of it is still being processed. All we know for sure is that we're different, and we don't want to go back to being the same before, to viewing the world in the same way. I could stand here all morning and share stories and testimonies of the things that we saw, of the Somali culture and the Somali people, and the fact that they too were created in God's image. They too reflect a part of his heart and his character. But I could also share about the change that, them that their religion binds them in and the playground that it provides for the devil to come and, come and have an absolute field day. But as I started preparing, none of that wanted to gel. And so I went back to the Lord and I was like, okay, no more what now. And the words that started burning in my heart were the one. So today I'm going to speak about the one who saved our souls, about the one who gave everything so that we can live in freedom and in relationship with Jesus and with God. But I'm also going to speak about the one, the one sheep, the one sinner, the one woman at the well, the one tax collector, the one that Jesus continually stepped out for. And my question for you today is, do you know the one, Jesus, intimately enough that you are willing, but also committed to stepping out for the one in your sphere of influence, the one that is lost, the one that is angry, the one that hurt you, the one that is possessed, I'm going to be very honest and vulnerable today, and I'm going to show you a bit of the ugly that's in my heart, especially that came out this morning when my husband and I had a disagreement. But I'm really trusting the Lord to remove that ugliness in my heart. And what I just feel I need to emphasize is that that ugliness is not going to disappear on its own. The devil would be a fool to let us go that easily. He's playing the long game here, and that is to distract and to mislead as many people as possible because he knows that that breaks God's heart. And he hates God and he hates us with a passion that you guys cannot even begin to imagine. Are you aware that you have an enemy? Well, Christoph asked just now. This is not just something for us to figure out and stumble along because there's someone actively trying to trip us up. But God has overcome. He's provided us every good thing that we need to figure this out. Jesus paid the ultimate price so that we don't have to spend eternity separated from him. He takes us as we are. But the thing is, when we come to him, we can't stay as we are. In his kingdom, there's only one king, and he has given us the choice to come and surrender. 
But if we want to come and not surrender, then we might as well not come at all. Because you and God can't both be kings. Andre preached so beautifully about surrender last week. And if you haven't listened to that sermon, I'd really encourage you to go listen. Because I think that's such a huge part of our Christian journey. Not I think, I know. Without surrender, there is no Jesus making us new. Um, If you guys can turn to 1 John 2, I would just like to read something for us there quickly. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God has been made complete. And this is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as Jesus walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. And yet, I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Then I want to jump to verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. I just want to read that last bit again. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But the one who does the will of the Father will live forever. How many of you have felt the Lord nudge you to reach out to a neighbor, call a friend, check in how they're doing? to stop and talk to a stranger next to the side of the road, <clears throat> to make contact with a family member that you haven't spoken to in a long time, or maybe on a more extreme level, to quit your job without a backup plan, to move to a new city, to take people into your homes, or to give your car away, or to go on long-term missions. And how many of you answered, not now, Lord. I'm too tired, I'm too busy, I'm too scared, I don't have enough money, I'm too numb, too pregnant, I'm too whatever. Or maybe just, I don't care enough to be bothered. In 1 John 2 verse 25, it speaks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and how none of that comes from the Father, but it will pass away. Why are we too tired, busy, scared or numb to do what the Lord says? And I think it's because we're so busy living our lives in pursuit of the things that satisfy the flesh, Oh, I've got so many papers. Romans 8 verse 13 says, If we live according to the flesh, we will surely die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. It speaks about an intentionality there. Please don't misunderstand me. Money in and of itself is not evil. The love of it is, though. 
a beautiful house, a nice things, a nice car, a good job. It's not evil. But if we desire those things more than we desire the presence and the will of God in our lives, then they've become idols. Let's not lie to ourselves. Jesus said that it is his food to do the will of his Father. And my question to us today is, what do we feed on? The less you feed your body, the more it screams. Anyone who's tried fasting knows that. The first time is horrible. But then your body dies a little bit, and it gets easier. But the less you feed your spirit, the quieter it becomes. It's not going to scream and fight. The contrast is true. The more you feed it, the louder it is, the more it makes known that it wants to spend time in God's word and in his presence and doing the will of the Father. And I want to venture to say that if your spirit is not making itself known, then you are spiritually starving. That's not a good place for any of us to be in. When we got back to South Africa from Somaliland, I was, oh, I was so shocked at the amount of value that we attach to materialism in this country. And I mean, it's not something I'm unfamiliar with. Grew up here, lived here my whole life. But it smacked me in the face. Um, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, your haircut, the color of your hair, your job title. We're a nation that attaches enormous value to that. Every Thursday, I sit through my daughter's ballet lessons, and my heart breaks for the women I'm surrounded by. The one is wealthier than the other, but they don't even make eye contact with you if you don't drive a certain car. But there's nothing of worth or of eternal value that defines them and grounds them. They're searching for value in all these places. Um, so this week, I left our Land Rover at home on purpose, and I got in our poor car, as stupid as that sounds, and I drove to ballet, and I greeted every single one of them with a huge smile and eye contact, and it was incredibly awkward. But I've decided that I'm going to keep praying for them. I'm going to pray for a moment to connect with the one, the one mom who's so tired that she doesn't know what to do, the one lonely wife, and the one who doesn't know how to carry on. And I will trust for that opportunity to introduce Jesus to them, to plant seeds and that he can water them and that they would grow. One of the very first things to confront us in Somaliland was the fact that we were addicted to performance and productivity. My dad's been telling me for years we're too busy, but I can now acknowledge that you are right. <laughs> everything is a rush. Everything has a time slot and a time limit before we scurry off to the next activity again. And so on and so forth, and so our lives went before. Our hosts sat down about six months ago, and they realized that something wasn't working. Benjamin, the, the man that we were living with, um, would head out early to the markets every morning to get what he needed to make the things on the farm work or happen, or if they needed a broom for the house, he'd head out early so that he could get on with his day and get his work done and get to people. But there were just ridiculous roadblocks that were being thrown up. He'd be arrested on the way to the market, or the police would stop him and accuse him of... I don't know, smuggling something, um, or he'd get robbed, or the market just wouldn't have any of what he's looking for. And so they sat down, and they said, well, clearly we are not able to do this in our own power. So we are going to give up the most productive hour of our day, 9 a.m., when the market's open and we can start going. And instead of working, we are going to sit, and we are going to worship, and we are going to pray. And then we will go out and do. And... Suddenly, things that should have taken five hours got done in 20 minutes. Things that took days or weeks before were done in a couple of hours. And as the year went on, they moved that prayer time to 2 p.m. But I actually just want to create the context for 2 p.m. in Somaliland for you guys. I need you to imagine living inside of an oven, and 2 p.m. is when it gets turned up to max heat. It's not a matter of not wanting to move. It's that you cannot move. It is so incredibly hot. But... They gave up their afternoon naps. The entire nation is sleeping between 12 and 4 p.m. All the markets close, and then they reopen. And 
prayed late into the evenings. Um, so to worship and pray at 2 p.m. is a huge sacrifice. The Afrikaans have a saying that says, and I think I've never felt it to be more true than the time we spent in Somalia and we had to pray after lunchtime. It was hard. My husband and I had a fight about that one afternoon as well. <laughs> um, but what it did do is it put a lot of things in context for us back home. And we just realized so much of our time has spent striving and rushing from one meeting to the next, trying to get everything done in our own power, trying to be everywhere and be everything to everybody, only to come home and crash so that we can get up tomorrow and do the same again. My question is, where is Jesus in all of that? Where do we intentionally place him first in a way that doesn't logically make sense, that doesn't fit our schedule and is convenient for us? Have any of you ever been on a boat? Have you noticed that unless you're intentional with the direction that you're heading, um, you start to drift? And at first, it's without you even realizing it, but eventually you look up and you realize you're not at all where you want to be or where you plan to be. Our spiritual lives are like that. Unless we keep our hand to the plow and we keep our eyes fixed on where we want to go and we structure our lives intentionally to make sure the road leads us there, I want to say the chances are pretty much guaranteed that we are going to drift. And one day we are going to look up and wonder how on earth did we get here? Lord, what happened? But it's the small choices we make every single day in our intentionality, regardless of how we feel, that determines where we end up. Um, I'm going to read a very short piece to you from a book called The Little Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure some of you have heard about The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I don't know if you've read it. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read the grown-up version or the children's version. It's really an incredible allegory of the Christian's life, and it sets so much in context for us. We've had some amazing times reading through it and talking to our children about the story. Um, so it's a very cool discipleship tool as well. But anyway, so just before the part that I'm going to read now, little Christian is a rabbit, and he's on his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city where the king is. And he just got to the cross where this burden he's been carrying his whole life was finally, it fell off his shoulders, which obviously Jesus removes our burdens, and he laid it down at the cross. And he was once again warned that he needs to stay on the straight and the narrow path because otherwise he's no longer under the protection of the king and he is in danger. So on he goes with his journey. And that's where I'll start reading. He was walking on with his mind full of these things when he saw just before him three young otters lying in the grass by the side of the road. He stopped to look at them as he passed. And then he found that they were all fast asleep and that their feet were bound together with bands of iron. The day was very hot, and they had foolishly turned out of the path and had laid down to rest for a little while. The servants of the wicked prince were always on the watch for careless pilgrims, and as soon as the lads were asleep, they had hastened to bind their feet, so that, unless the king himself sent someone to help them, they would never be able to take another step toward the celestial city. Little Christian felt that it would be unkind to leave them lying there, so he went up to them and called to them. You'd better get up, he said. This is not a safe place at all to sleep in. Don't you know that someone has bound your feet together? How many of you have sometimes said to a Christian brother or sister, don't you see this deception that has come in your life? And they're like, what are you talking about? Mind your own business. Then one of them, whose name was Simple, answered without even opening his eyes. What is the matter? I don't see anything to hurt us. Do let us have a minute's peace. But little Christian said, I am sure you are in great danger. Make haste and let me help you undo these irons. And the otter who lay next to Simple was named Sloth, and at last he sat up and began to rub his eyes in a sleepy way. He looked at little Christian, but he would not listen to his advice. What is the use of disturbing us, he said. Just go on. I shall be coming soon when I've had a good rest. How many times do we feel that we just want 
a moment's peace from this road that the Lord has called us to walk. We just want to sit down in the rest and the Lord will understand, but we don't see the deception that creeps in when we step back. And the third otter called presumption said, surely we can do as we like. If we choose to sleep in a dangerous place, it is our business, not yours. So go on your journey and don't meddle with other animals. And then they both lay down again by the side of Simple, and in a few minutes, Christian saw that they were all sleeping soundly as before. Not going to read anymore, even though I wanted. Um, find my place. Okay, so these otters were tied up because they were tired and they'd fallen asleep next to the road. And I can understand why they were tired. A little earlier in the book, they had to navigate through like the Valley of Destruction and move over a mountain. And it's obviously has different imagery in the book, but it's demonic activity and stuff. And it's exhausting. So I can understand that they are tired, but they had specific instructions from the king not to rest in these places. He provides places for them to step off safely and to find rest. So in that moment, obedience would have meant stepping one foot in front of the other, regardless of what they felt like, and trusting that what God instructed them to do was for their own good. So that sleep is an example of lust of the flesh that 1 John 2 speaks about. And I guess when you compare it to things like alcohol and drugs or even food addictions, it doesn't seem like such a bad one. But I think at any point when we indulge our flesh over what the Lord has instructed us to do, it places us in a very dangerous situation. And deception can come whilst we slumber. I can spend a whole term sermon talking about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but it's not difficult to figure out what those things are. I want you to go and read Samson's story with these three sins in mind and see how they are the very things that tripped him up and caused him to stumble. Woman, lust of the, fl- lust of the eyes. Drink, lust of the flesh. And pride, pride of life. It's such a dangerous combination, whichever form it presents itself in. And when we say yes to the lust of the flesh... Yes to the lust of the eyes and yes to the pride of life when we indulge and allow our identity to be formed by our jobs, by the people we are dating, by the cars we drive. We are saying no to God's will. We are saying no to being used by him. And we are at great risk of not making it to the celestial city, as little Christian calls it. At the end of Samson's story, we see that he repents and God uses him mightily again. And in his death, he killed more people than he killed in his entire life. In Judges 16 verse 30, it says, And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and all the people who were in in it. And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. I don't know how many of you have actually read the story of Samson and tried to count how many people he killed. But earlier in his life, during a single event, he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. So just, you know, if that was a single event, I cannot imagine what the total number was. So for the Bible to say that he killed more people at his death than he killed in all his life, it must have been a huge amount of people. The final act of God through Samson allowed 20 years of peace to rule in that region. When we are willing to lay down our lives, to die to self, God is able to do far more through us than we will ever accomplish in a lifetime of holding on to our own pride and holding on to our lives. In Matthew 16 verse 25 it says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake will find it. And I want to encourage you today. Lay down your lives. Lose it. Some might say, okay, but Samson died. He's dead. Finished. Clor. Yes, to the temporary world. But he is in glory with Christ. He's living in the eternal. 
This world we live in is the temporary one. And unless we start viewing things from an eternal perspective, someone prayed this morning as well, it will be very hard for us to surrender and let go of control. A very good place to live from is from standing in front of Jesus one day and looking back at your life. So before every decision, place yourself next to the Lord on judgment day and then think, what decision would I make in that moment from this position? Hindsight is twenty twenty. But we don't live our lives like that. We live and make mistakes and then we hope to try and do better. But ask the Lord for that eternal vision. Ask him for the ability to view situations and to just place yourself outside of your current situation and view back from the end of your life. Control, I think, is one of the biggest idols that we have in our lives. But it's such a deception because in reality we have no control at all. What we do have is worry, stress, fear, anxiety, insomnia. And the sooner we surrender, the sooner we can walk in the freedom that Christ died for us to walk in. So I'm going to bring us back to my original question. Do we know the one enough to care about the one? When we look at the continent of Africa and we see all the conflicts, the civil wars, the deaths, the terror attacks, the famines, the floods, just it's chaos. And we have to ask, where is God? What some of you might not know is that the first missionaries were sent to the Congo in the year 1490, and yet, today things don't seem all that different. doesn't seem better for it. So the question that I've been asked and the question I ask myself is, what is the point? Why do we go? Nothing big changes anyway. At least not in the grand scheme of things. And I'll be honest with you, when we landed in Argesa, after 24 hours of traveling and that 48 degree weather slams you in the face and the airport is in a horrible condition, you just came from Ireland where it's raining and it's nice and everything works, and... Uh, the guy on duty at customs is having a power show and my children are having a meltdown and I can't keep this stupid cloth on my head. Like, I had a little tantrum in my head. I threw a little meltdown right there and I said all the words that we are not supposed to say as Christians and I asked myself, why on God's green earth are we here where it is not green at all? <laughs> and I didn't receive an answer in that moment. But as we spend time there, the Lord opened my eyes. Jesus, God incarnate, came to earth knowing he was coming to a people, his own people, that would reject him, abuse him, belittle him. But still he came for the widow, for the woman who bled, for the tax collector, for the one. He came to set individuals free and he came to provide a way, a roadmap for us to come back home to the Father. If it was easy, if the road was broad, then many probably would have crossed over at once. But it's not. It's narrow and it's difficult. But it is clear Jesus invites us to walk with him and he will show us the way. It says his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If only we would abide in him. The missionaries we stayed with and the rest of the community we met, they have literally given up their entire lives in order to live there, to raise their families there. Some gave up the possibility of ever getting married. Guys, there are some beautiful women over there, but they gave it all up and they are serving the local communities with the hope that someone, one person, comes to salvation. The disappointment, disillusion, and fear are very real. One of the American women was driving to the market one day when she was arrested, and the police accused her of being a terrorist. And in Somaliland, you are guilty until proven innocent, and you don't get to defend yourself. Your clan needs to come defend you. She's American. She has no clan. So she spent quite a while in prison, surrounded by a bunch of men that attach less than zero value to a woman's life. You can imagine the trauma that comes from that. Are they still in Somaliland? Yes, they are. Are they still serving? Yes, they are. 
Another woman was walking home from the market one, or from another missionary's house one afternoon when teenage boys started yelling at her that she dare not cross before or behind them, that she wasn't worth the ground that she's walking on. And when she pretended not to understand them and continued walking towards home, they picked up stones and started throwing them at her. This is the reality for the missionaries in this country. They are not wanted there. They are despised and they are distrusted. The struggles and spiritual wars are a lot more blatant and clear in regions like that because you are either a Muslim or you are not. In the West, we walk a very fine, dangerous line where anything goes. Christians can be Christian without being Christian. A Muslim can be a Muslim with no accountability or actual behavior to back up their beliefs. We live in a crazy world where people identify as crazy things because there's just no accountability and the standard of truth has become relative. But for us, it cannot be that way. Truth remains truth no matter where we are, and we need to be careful in this country and in this city and in this age that we live in that we don't allow truth to become blurred by that which is fed to us by the media. The Bible is truth, God's word is truth, and it is not shakable and it is not changeable. We believe we are okay when in reality we are so far from okay that we are one step away from burning. I'd like to share the story of a woman that I met while in Somaliland, a local. I'm not going to share her real name for privacy reasons, but let's call her Amina for today's purposes. She was the second daughter born to her parents, and most of her childhood was filled with fear and abuse at the hands of her sister. She says, looking back now, she can see that her sister became demon-possessed when she underwent female circumcision, which is just a nice way of saying female gender mutilation. Um, and this is just one of the many practices that is accepted as normal and socially correct because women are seen not as someone made in God's image, but as a possession to control and to provide pleasure to a man. Many times, Amina would wake up covered in oil with her sister ready to set her on fire and burn her alive, or with a knife pressed to her throat. Her childhood was filled with terror and fear. Her mom prevented the ritual from being performed on her, so she was spared that. But at 16, she was sold into marriage to a man who abused her terribly. Today, she only has a few teeth left because he beat the rest out of her. He would also lock her up and starve her, and during her second pregnancy, he locked her up for two weeks without food and water, and their second child was born with incredible medical complications. They had two more babies, so four children later, she escapes and takes her children back to her mother with her. But on and off, her husband would come, and he would steal their sickest child and go across the border to Ethiopia with him just to taunt her and um, to terrorize her. And at that stage, she'd started working for one of the missionary families, and when it happened again, they all just said, enough is enough. And they all fasted and they prayed and they asked the Lord to intervene and to stop this man from wreaking such havoc in the lives of these children and their mother. And I kid you not, guys, a week later, the man died in a car accident. Amina came to salvation and she was baptized not long after that. And um, something I was just reminded of is, as a young child, because she didn't really have a sister, it was more of like, yeah, definitely not a sister relationship. But she cried out to the Lord for her sister, and she told her mom this. And her mom had a dream one night, and the next morning she said to Amina, I had a dream that the Lord is going to send you a sister, but she's going to come from very, very far away. And she was reminded of this dream whilst we were visiting there. And today, Benjamin's wife and Amina are pretty much best friends, and they write worship songs together, and they look after the local community in hopes of getting them to come to Christ. And she came to work one morning and she said she was reminded of this dream and this memory and she just wants to say to Mariette that you are the sister that God promised me all those years ago when I was a lonely little girl. And I mean, Mariette grew up here in Bethlehem in South Africa and she is now there in Somaliland. So it's just incredible. God hears us. He hears our prayers and 
even people who don't know him, he speaks to them. It's for us to listen and to move. The second lady I want to tell you about, let's call her Honey, is a young mommy who recently divorced her husband because he beat her so badly. The missionaries took her to the police station to file a report so that she would have a leg to stand on when filing for divorce. But instead of helping them, the policeman said, your husband can chop you up and eat you piece by piece, and I won't file a report because it's his right to do so. That is someone's daughter, it's someone's sister, and she's not unique in her situation. Things like this happen in our own country as well. I heard of that very thing happening in South Africa to people your age, my age. But we've numbed ourselves because we can't cope with the brokenness because we don't sit at the Lord's feet. Honey came to salvation, but she has massive trauma to process. She's got no contact with her family, and the community suspects that she was probably raped at a young age. And how it works in that region is if you're raped, you bring shame on your family, and you get sent away to distant relatives, and they cut off all contact. So the missions community became her family. She was embraced by them, loved by them, fed by them, and she came to salvation. And we have so much hope that things can be different for her daughter. But the thing is, there's a massive need for trauma workers, for people to be the hands and feet of Jesus in these regions. It's not productive, it's not efficient, it's mostly frustrating, but the sweet, sweet victory when even one person comes to salvation outshines all the rest of that. Like Jesus said, there will be a glorious celebration over even one lost sinner who returns to the fold, more so than for all the righteous who never strayed. We really had an incredible time in Somaliland, and the spiritual climate and physical climate were both a huge adjustment to make. I fought with my husband for the first couple of days. It sounds like I fight with him all the time. I really don't. But the spiritual atmosphere for a woman when you step into that nation yells at you. You are unwanted. You are ugly. You are unloved. You are worthless. And I'm thinking this is my husband saying these things to me, and it's really not until he sat down with me and we prayed through it. And it just is so blatantly obvious when you step out of the properties of the missionaries, you step into that spiritual climate, and you have to have your armor in place. And you have to be aware that there is an enemy that is fighting you. Here I have the luxury of sometimes not being aware of that. But there, oh, he destroys you in three seconds if you don't have your armor ready. Um, we could have done a ton of things with the money it cost us to fly to Somaliland. But I can guarantee you that we got the best return on our money that we possibly could have. An eternal return. And today I want to encourage you to go. Spend your money and go. Go and have your hearts broken. Go and feel utterly hopeless at the devastation that you see. Go and serve. Go and sow seeds. You'll probably make a difference, but I can guarantee you that you will be the one who comes back changed. You will be the one who comes back with a heart that sees the world differently. You will be the one who comes back with eyes more open to see, ears more open to hear, and hands and feet more ready to serve in your local community. I want to finish off today by just reading something. It's something that Christoph touched on at the beginning of the service. Um, I'd like all of you to just close your eyes and really allow the Lord to come and point out areas to you in your heart where you are filled with other things, where we are striving in ways and not relying on the Lord, not reaching out to God. He prepared a table before me, but I have lost my appetite. I was starved for his presence, but too full of myself to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
I tried to saturate my hunger for control with projections and plans, only to be devoured by fear. His words were sweet as honey, but it was bitterness that I let pass through my lips and settle in my stomach. He offered me pure spiritual milk, but I preferred formulas over formation. I complained about gathering daily manna because it was much easier to just feed into my complacency. I chose earthly happiness over the oil of gladness. I traded the fruit of his spirit for the works of my hands, as if I could grow anything apart from his grace. I tried to saturate my hunger for intimacy by feeding into my lust. I rejected his new wine and drank deeply of my old ways. Time and time again, I've consumed every counterfeit crumb as if I had never tasted and seen his goodness. And time and time again, the bread of life still invites me to dine with him. Time and time again, he calls me to drink from his cup, overflowing with living water and discover that there, I am satisfied at last. Father, you have so much more for us than that which the world holds before us. From the time we are born and grow up and move through the schooling system, we are trained to think and to plan in a certain way, Lord. But I just pray that today we would come and we would surrender all before you and just declare that you are the all-knowing one. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we bring our talents before you. We bring our resources before you. And I ask that you would stir in our hearts a longing to go, that it would burn so much that we can't stay here, Father, that we would go and that we would serve this lost and this dying world. Father, I pray that you would speak to individuals today and that you would point them in the direction that you want them to go. Don't look at your physical circumstances. Don't look at the limitations that are set before you. The one thing that we came back from Somaliland with was the words that God makes a way where there is no way. He parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to pass through. David, a shepherd boy, became king. There were so many times he does the impossible and there's no reason that he won't do the same for you if you do it in service of building his kingdom. Yeah, as we prepared, we just felt that there's, uh, there's two groups of people that we, we want to pray for. And this morning, when we prayed for the service, we got reminded of the fact that very often we get stirred by something that we hear. But the Bible says something so crazy. He says that, if we hear his word and we don't do it, we are likened to a man who builds his house upon the sand. But if we hear his word and we do something about it, we are likened to a man who builds his house upon a rock. And this morning I want to encourage you to, if you stirred, be the man or woman. Just on a side note, if I must be okay to be the bride of Christ, you guys can be okay to be... Um, the sons of God. So let's be likened to men and women who build our houses upon the rock. And the two groups of people that um, we want to pray for, if the band can come up for me so long, um, is the first group of people, you, you hear and I speaking of the one, the one who gave it all, the one who bled for us to set us free. But you don't know him. You've heard about him, but you haven't met him. I want to invite you this morning to be bold and to step out. We're going to invite you to come forward so we can lay hands on you and pray for you so that you can meet him, so that he can change everything in your life. And the second group of people that we want to pray for is the people who feel stirred to do something. 
Philip spoke about short-term missions, Zimbabwe, Malapua. There's many different opportunities. Even Azra and I shared, there's some of you who know there's a distant family member you were supposed to reach out to, a friend from school, somebody at work, somebody that you have to share with, but you've been putting it off. And this morning I want to encourage you, don't let that stirring pass you by. Don't leave here with a house that's built upon sand. And I encourage you to come up. And as we prayed, the, the, the word that we received was you need to confess. You need to speak it out aloud. There's something that happens when we speak. Proverbs says, for in the tongue is the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. So if you speak something, it is powerful. And we want to invite you to come up. So just close your eyes. and um, I'm just going to invite the, the first group of people just to, to raise your hand. If, if you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus, you haven't met Him, you've heard of Him, but He hasn't changed your life and you want to meet Him, I just want to encourage you to, to be bold. Just slip up your hand there where you're sitting. Just say, Jesus, I am the one. I am the one that you prepared this message for this morning. I'm the one that you're calling. Yes, I just feel that the Lord is making me pause here. There's somebody who so desperately wants to raise their hand, but they, they've got fear. Fear of what people will think. Fear of what the people in my small group will say. I've been talking this talk for a long time, but I haven't surrendered. And I want to encourage you to let go of that fear. Raise your hand. Be bold. Just put it up. Yes, Jesus, we just call them now. We call them now in Jesus' name. We call them now. If the ushers can start handing out the communion for us. Um, we're going to have communion this morning and we're going to be reminded of what all this has cost us. This that we've experienced, the life that we live, the relationship we have with God didn't come free of charge. It was bought by the most expensive price that we will only understand in eternity what that price is. There's this moment upon the cross where Jesus was tortured and he's literally bleeding out the worst kind of pain that you can imagine. And there the real sacrifice happens. He cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God the Father turned his back upon God the Son and there was a a discord, a, a gap between the God who dwells in perfect unity and, and judgment was poured out on Jesus. And that's the sacrifice that was made for us to sit here. So this morning as we take the bread and be reminded of His broken body and as we drink the grape juice as a reminder of His blood that was spilled, I want you to understand the sacrifice, the price that was paid. And the sheer responsibility to live 
worthy of this sacrifice. Renai touched on it, but Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and a few find it. I don't know about you, but I will make sure that I am one of those few. And the only way to do it is to do it drastically, to do it radically. If you're going to do it mediocrely and you're not going to be willing to pay everything for that, chances are you're going to find yourself falling short. Is there anyone that was skipped? Some grape juice here in front. Thank you, Pastor. So just bow your heads and let's just examine our own hearts. Be honest with yourself. Are you living worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made? Or is there things that you want to change? Yes, Jesus, this morning as we take off this bread and we eat it, we are reminded of your body that was broken. We are reminded of the fact that you had to suffer so that we don't have to. We are reminded of the fact that you got ridiculed and you got tortured so that we can have a relationship with God. Let's eat together. Yes, Jesus, and as we take this wine, we thank you for the new covenant that you cut with us. The covenant where we are saved by grace. And not by works. The covenant where you make us white as snow. Where you remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. The covenant where we may enter your throne room boldly. And I pray that people will do that this morning. That people will enter your throne room boldly. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria. <laughs>